So welcome to this Rest in the UK information webinar. This is one of a series of webinars that we're holding and we'll be delivering at least one um, every month on a different subject. So we're really pleased to have with us today, Dr. Daniel Jack uh, Jackson. Uh, Daniel is a clinical research fellow working at Moorfields Eye Hospital uh, and the Institute of Ophthalmology in London. He's currently undertaking a PhD with Professor uh, Maria Musaji and works in the adult and children's genetics clinics at Moorfields. His background is in clinical ophthalmology, where he has almost completed his training in the Oxford training programme. Uh, he has a special interest in genetic eye disorders, including inherited retinal conditions, paediatrics and glaucoma. So I'm also joined this evening by Kate Arkell, our research development manager. And whilst Daniel is giving his presentation this evening, we will be collecting questions to answer at the end. So there are a couple of ways that you can ask questions. You can either type them in the Q&A section, which is at the bottom of your screens. Uh, these questions will be asked by the team on your behalf. Alternatively, you can raise your hand by pressing the Alt and Y key if you're on a Windows computer or the Option and Y if you're using a Mac. Uh, we'll then ask you to unmute uh, your microphone so you can ask the question yourselves. Uh, so please do leave your questions uh, throughout the presentation and we'll have them answered at the end for you. We will endeavour to answer as many questions as we can. However, any questions we're not able to get to today will be followed up over the next couple of weeks. So thank you once again for joining us. And without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Daniel. Thank you ever so much. And uh, it's a pleasure to be able to speak with you all this evening. I'll just load up my presentation. Perfect. Yes. So, um, yes, thank you, Matt, and thank you for the invitation. So um, I'm going to be talking about imaging of the eye and in the retina in particular. Now, this is a, a huge topic and uh, changes in imaging have revolutionized the way we have, uh, well, we approach treating the eye. So both in the diagnosis, monitoring you, investigating you, and also treating you. And what I'd hoped to be able to answer throughout this presentation is, is why we take retinal images, what images are taken at a typical appointment, how the images are taken, although I imagine many, many of the listeners are, are perhaps more expert at uh, having pictures taken than, than I am, um, how we interpret them. So looking at the images, what do they mean? What do they mean for the eye doctor? What do they mean for the patient? And actually, how does this help in planning treatment? So I'm gonna put this into a context of a typical clinical appointment, as, as many of you will probably know, an eye appointment is not just a simple wait and have a 10 minute chat and go. You're usually there for a few hours. First, you need to find the hospital, find the reception. I know in, in Moorfields in particular, it's a, it's a rabbit warren, which is very difficult to get to. You're then having to wait around for a little bit. Someone calls you in, you have to then read this chart, having to put this, uh, this thing on the nose with lots of pinholes, which is difficult to hold. Someone might come towards you and check your eye pressure, put some eye drops, which invariably sting, and then your eyes, your pupils become very big, so your, your vision becomes very blurred. After that, there's some more waiting and a bit more waiting, and then eventually you're taken into a room or lots of different rooms where you have all these machines usually humming in the dark. You then have to try and pop your chin onto the rest, keep your head forwards against the band, uh, someone's asking you not to blink, you might see green crosses, you might be asked to look in particular directions, you see lots of flashes, 
you come out back into the waiting area where you're, where your vision is even more blurred after all those things happening and eventually you have your your appointment so what i like to do today is is just um just perhaps um uh, just talk about some of these things that you would typically have done during your your appointment and i would say actually having the pictures is one of the most important parts of of your eye appointment and in fact um Nowadays, with eye clinic workloads, um, we are even moving towards just having virtual clinics where actually, if you're stable, you've had some appointments with a doctor already, you just come in to have your pictures, your images taken, they're reviewed uh, remotely, and then we will contact you um, with regards to, to the outcome. Now, to be able to talk and, and understand a little bit about the pictures uh, that we take of the retina, um, it's, it's helpful just to have a basic understanding uh, of the eye and uh, the structure of the back of the eye in particular, which I'm sure many of you are aware of. So this is really just a cross section of the eye. So the eye, you think of it like a, a sphere, it's about four to five uh, milliliters in volume. The cornea at the front uh, is the clear window into the eye, the part where let's say you would put a contact lens on. Behind that you have your lens, which is like a, a clear blob, which hangs in between these ligaments just behind the colored part of the eye, the iris. The lens together with the cornea helps to bend the light such that it hits the back of the eye, hitting the retina uh, and, and giving you a focused image. Behind that, you have this jelly substance called the vitreous, which is important in development, uh, mainly water, but it is a bit of a, a mainly a, a jelly type uh, uh, substance. You then have the optic nerve, which is the cable which relays all of this electrical information taken from the retina to the brain, so the brain can then interpret the image and then you have the retina itself this very very thin layer if you see with the um uh compared to the, the rest of the layers a very very thin layer at the back um behind that you have the choroid which is the uh, layer behind underneath the retina which has a lot of the blood supply um to the eye and then you have the sclera which is the very thick white tough coat which we all we all see now when uh, obviously we need light to go into the eye, it hits the retina, which is, as I say, a very thin piece of, of tissue at the back. It's approximately 150 microns to 400 microns, so less than half a millimeter thick. And if we were to have a look or take a photo of the back of the eye, this is what it would look like. So you see this um, nice sort of orangey sheen of, of, of the retina. Uh, you see this white circle, which is, the nerves, you see sort of a pinky area around the outside and a whiter area in the middle. You see all these red lines, red squiggles coming off uh, the nerve, which are the blood vessels. So these are the arteries and the veins that supply the retina. And then you have this dimple in the center, which is the, the macula, which is it's obviously very important. I'm sure many of you know about it, but this is responsible for our central vision, our detailed vision, reading vision. Uh, and why, where we do most of our most of our seeing. So any small changes that happen with the macula can have quite a, a big impact on a person's uh, a person's vision. Now, if you have a look at the cross section of the retina, despite it being so small, it is highly organized and actually very complex. We divide it really into the neural retina, which is around about nine layers. Underneath that, you have the retinal pigment epithelium, which is a single layer which helps to provide support to the photoreceptors. So these are the cells which help collect the light in the neural retina. And then below that, we have the, the choroid and then outside of that, the sclera. So I'm going to talk around 
mainly three different types of imaging today because these are the ones which are commonly used. Um, as I say, there are lots of different types of images which we can image the front of the eye, outside of the eye, so on and so forth. But in terms of um, attending a retinal appointment or being assessed for potential inherited retinal disease, these are the three main things that you would, you would have. Now, one of the reasons we dilate you during the clinic is to make your pupils big. It's partly to help us assess the eye, uh, but also it helps us to get some pretty good pictures as well. We can take a lot of these pictures without you needing to be dilated, but ultimately it helps to get us better images, which is particularly important if you're only being monitored once a year or, or so on and so forth, or if we want to monitor very subtle changes, we want to get as good a picture as possible um, um, so we can make a decision really. Now, the first one we're going to talk about is fundal photography. So fundal or fundus basically just means looking at the back of the eye, so the picture of the back of the eye. Uh, and that's what it is. It really is just a photograph which we would see of the back of the eye. Um, now, um, a lot of these are taken if, let's say, you have di diabetes, you would go for a screening appointment where you have these photos taken and you get pictures like this at the top, which is a, a normal and healthy eye. Now, this type of photo actually just looks at really the central part of the back of the eye, but this is where a lot of the important details are. So the optic nerve, the blood vessels and the macula. And then you can see there's a bit of a difference to the one at the bottom where on the outside, um, you can see these brown specks. The color looks very different. The nerve, instead of being a nice pinky outline, has got a much more of a whitish look, which is someone who has retinitis pigmentosa. Now, just taking that a bit further, the gold standard really in many eye units now is to perform what is called wide field photography or what's called on usually what's called an onoptos machine. And um, you can see in this picture that the, the important details might seem much smaller, might seem lost here, but that's because we're now seeing the entire retina, so we're seeing the entire periphery, well, almost the entire periphery. And this gives us a lot of very important information. And from that, we can then zoom in um, and have a look in a bit more, more detail. Um, it's not a true image. This is sort of a, a reconstructed image. And at the bottom, you can just see a person's eyelashes there, which sometimes gets in the way. These are um, very impressive machines. So. Um, these uh, we're able to take images of, of adults, of children, uh, even babies, if we absolutely had to, if we position them carefully. So it's very useful to try uh, getting a good detailed picture of the back of the eye. And this is why it's important being able to see the outside. So in here, in this case, you might think actually the central part looks reasonably okay, but you have lots of these changes on the outside, which are very important to see. So we would only be able to see this if we were examining you. If we had to ask you to look in very particular directions, we would have to be very careful with the lens. But here with a very quick picture, we have all of this information. So that first is photography. And we'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, the next picture or the next imaging modality I'd like to talk about is something called uh, OCT, so optical coherence tomography. Um, this has really revolutionized ophthalmology uh, respiratory treatment over the past 15 years or so. And almost without doubt, if you go to a retinal clinic, almost every patient or every person will have uh, an OCT taken of the eye if it's possible to take. And really, what is it? So obviously it's got a very long name, but it's useful to think of it really. It's like an ultrasound involving light, basically. So it's, um, it's a machine really which shoots some light into the eye. It's uh, near infrared light. It then measures the 
reflection of the light back, the scatter of the light uh, against a reference to give you an image. It's a really great piece of equipment because this is this is non-invasive. Yes, you have to be able to position yourself. You need to stay reasonably still, not blink and have to um, obviously position your head and neck. So sometimes it is not possible to do this. Um, we do have um, uh, portable types of these machines. They're not perhaps quite as good, but but still nonetheless quite useful. It's non-contact, so nothing is touching your eye. It is fast, obviously painless, reliable, sensitive. There's no radiation involved here at all. So obviously this is why the eye is such a such a, a, a useful organ really, because it is optically clear. In other words, you can see out, we can therefore see in. So let's say if we compare that to other organs in the body, you know, let's say we had to look at your liver or kidneys, we'd have to do invasive tests, let's say like a blood test or biopsies, or you'd have to go into a, a CT or an MRI scanner, a CT scanner, which would result in radiation. The eye is very beautiful in that uh, most of the things that we can do here, we don't even need to touch the eye and they're taken extremely quickly. Um, the other fascinating thing about taking images of the eye is that this is, we, we can basically directly observe the central nervous system. And we can't really do that anywhere else in the body without you having to have an operation. Um, so this type of image is, is really important and it looks at the macula. So uh, you can get different types of OCT, which can look at your optic nerve. So if let's say if you had a condition like glaucoma, that might be useful or, or other things. But for the retina and certainly in the retinal clinic, we would always take a, a, a macular OCT. So this is looking at that central sensitive part of the retina in lots of detail, um, as we can see here. So that little dimple that you can see in the cross section and that little dark area in the center there, that's our macula, and this is what it's looking at. Um, obviously small things, small tiny bits, uh, tiny change of the macula can have quite a big impact on vision. So um, it helps us to ascertain uh, functionally what your vision would be like, as well as helping the diagnosis. So we know that um, anything that affects the macula can result in straight lines appearing wavy, um, blind spots centrally or just off centrally or just like a, a deep smudge like this if it gets quite bad. And when we take uh, an OCT image, this is what we get. So if you look on the left here, you see almost like a black and white image of the back of the eye and you see lots of green lines here. So this is the different cross sections it takes. And what we're interested in is the one right in the center, which is going through your macula. And in the center of the macula, you've got the fovea, which is responsible for a really fine vision right at the center of the macula. And this is what we're interested in here. So this is a picture of your central macula, your fovea. It is like a, a little dimple. So let's say a valley in between two hills. And that is normal. Um, um, you can also just see, I'm not sure if you can see my arrow or not, just on top of this hill with the two dimples, you can see two almost little leaflets just moving off there that's actually the back of the uh, jelly at the eye so that's that's part of the vitreous that you're seeing as well so we can see things in a huge amount of detail so much so in fact that we can almost separate each individual layer of your retina so if we look back at that schematic we had when we look at that diagram of all the cells in the retina we if the, if the image is good enough uh, we can almost see all of these layers so it is highly detailed um, we get all this information in a very short space of time and the important parts are obviously we want to check that the overall contour is okay um, we want to check if there are any blobs in the middle which i'll show you in just a moment 
uh, and also these layers at the bottom, these sort of three white lines, oops, excuse me, three white lines here are also very important. So the, the bottom white line is our, is our RPE, the retinal pigment epithelium. This is the layer which is supplying the retina with nutrients. And above that here, we have um, uh, the ellipsoid zone. So that is really a marker of your photoreceptors. So how well these cells are, are, are working. So we can basically see those in, 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 in sort of that time point. Um, and that's one of the things that we look at when we're assessing particularly inherited retinal conditions. We can see all sorts of different pathology and weird and wonderful things here. So I'll just talk through some of these. So again, on this picture here, you've got the normal OCT of the macula on the left. So this dimple valley in between the two hills. And then if you look at the one on the right, you see this almost looks like a mountain here with all this, these black sort of spaces, these gaps here. Uh, and you can see it's much, much thicker than the normal image. Now, these black spaces are, are fluid really. So this is something called cystoid macular edema, which can be a feature in some retinal conditions, some inherited retinal conditions. And um, this is quite a severe case, but as you see, because this is such a sensitive part of the eye, um, yeah, this will have quite a dramatic impact on, on the vision. So edema in medicine basically means fluid or swelling. So that's why your eye doctor might say, there is swelling at the back of the eye, or there is no swelling at the back of the eye, or the swelling is getting better. That's what they're talking about. The macula obviously referring because it's right in the center, and cystoid, it just means the pattern of, of the edema there. So you might just, they might just call it macular edema, or let's say if you have diabetes in the eye, you can sometimes get diabetic macular edema. Now, before we had these images, we were having to basically try and work this out ourselves uh, with our lenses in, in clinic to see if we can see the swelling there, but we couldn't quantify it. It was hard to tell if it was getting better or getting worse. But here we can actually see it and we can take repeated images over time, which, um, which gives us an idea of how things are, are progressing. Similarly, it's also revolutionized the treatment of wet macular degeneration. So again, we've got the normal scan on the left. On the right, you can see this is very different. You can see, firstly, you've got these black spaces again, so that's fluid there, that's swelling, that's edema. And then underneath, the instead of having these nice straight three white lines, you've got all this ruffled, rugged area, which is usually due to this network of blood vessels underneath there, which is causing the problem here. So again, we can now monitor the progress um, of wet macular degeneration um, over time. So let's say if you are having treatment for that, we'd like to see these black spaces go away and disappear in time. And that usually correlates with you noticing an improvement in your vision. The other thing is that we can take different types of these scans. Uh, so for this one, this is just an example that actually we can go beyond the retina, we can go a bit further down. So we can actually look at the choroid underneath the retina in certain cases. So we are basically able to see most of the layers at the back of the eye here, which is, which is really very useful. Now, how does an OCT help with inherited retinal disease? Well, first it helps in the diagnosis, it helps to assess severity, helps us to monitor progression and also look for, for complications. And not only can we just look at the scan, we can actually take physical measurements. So if the scan is good enough, we can measure that on the software which is associated with the scan, or we can do that manually ourselves with some other type of software. And this becomes important um, um, not only to, you know, uh, not only just for, for a patient or a person at their clinical visit, but also if we want to try and think about 
um, a treatment, obviously we would need to test that in a clinical trial and actually being able to take these measurements successfully is really important. So this has really helped us to do this. And two of the things we look at are central retinal thickness. So the one on the top there, usually that's about under 200 microns, so a fifth of a millimeter. And then also the ellipsoid zone. So this one here in the middle and also at the, at the bottom, that's a person at the bottom has just got a slightly longer eye, which is why it's a bit more bowl shaped as opposed to it being, being flat. And these parameters are really important to be able to, to measure over time. Um, and actually we can then basically figure out the natural history of the condition. So let's say if you had a particular type of retinal problem, we can take measurements from lots of different patients over time and say, and compare them. And then we can say, well, actually this progresses very quickly. This, this measure will drop in a few years. We've got this window to treat you. Or we can say, actually, no, this, this tends to progress very, very slowly. We've got a large window of, of treatment or you don't necessarily need treatment. And that's why, and it's also important when you, when you counsel someone, when they come to the clinic to say, well, actually, because of all of this information that we have, we actually don't think that this is going to progress very quickly and you'll stay stable over time. And uh, again, it, one of the other reasons is, is cystoid macular edema is a feature of, let's say, retinitis pigmentosa, a form of inherited retinal eye disease, which can happen, um, can be quite frequent. It depends upon the type that you have. But you see, this is the same patient, and this, can, this is what happens when, when, when they're treated uh, in some cases. So at the top, this is untreated, and then we've given them some drops over a few months. It's not completely gone away, so it's not gone back to that valley in the two hills, but it's certainly much better, and we would hope that their vision improves from that. Now, the next one I'd like to talk about is, is something called fundal autofluorescence. Um, so this, this, is, this is an important tool. Uh, you might not necessarily have this at each clinical visit, but certainly if you come to a specialist clinic, you, you would be having, having this because it, it provides a lot of information. So structures in the eye have uh, fluorescent properties. I mean, it's not to say it's glow in the dark, but basically if you were to shoot a particular wavelength of light at the eye, and you use a particular filter, you'll be able to measure a background fluorescence. And you see this photo here at the bottom, it almost looks like a black and white image, but it, it's basically a, a type of autofluorescence from the eye. And what we're measuring here depends upon the type of light that we use. So most of the time we use a short wavelength, let's say a blue light or a green light. This measures something called lipofuscin. So basically all that is, is that this is a substance which is in the back layer of the retina, the retinal pigment epithelium, so the single layer at the back. Um, being able to measure this uh, is important because in some cases, if increases in quantity can uh, be associated with some conditions, or if there's no autofluorescence, then that's also important to know. You can use a slightly longer wavelength as well to look at melanin, so a slightly different substance again in the RPE, but ultimately we can think of this tool as looking at the health of the retinal pigment epithelium. So you might think, well, why do we need to use this sort of black and white when we've got it in color? Well, it's a good question, but I'll show you an example here. So this is a person who has Stargardt disease. And uh, on the image on the, the left, you can see is, is a, a photo. So you might be able to think, well, just next to the nerve where the macula is, there's some few very subtle changes there, but I'm not sure there's some yellow things just on the outside, but actually when you look at the autofluorescence, this gives us a lot of very important information. So you see these white specks in the circles just around the blood vessels and where the macula is, you see this big black area just showing where actually there's been some damage to the macula there, uh, which therefore provides us with a lot of information. 
you can have different patterns as well. So it helps with the diagnosis. So in Stargardt, you might have these flex. In Croideriumia, you might have lots of different areas or patches of atrophy. So this is when we say atrophy, this is part of where the retina is, is very thin. So it's, it's unhealthy uh, and sometimes might not even be there. And then also in macular degeneration as well, it's, it can be very useful because actually if there's a lot of what we call central atrophy, so a central damage, even with the treatments we have at the moment, unfortunately, we can't, can't restore that. The other thing is, is that this can also be used to take measurements. So in a certain types of retinitis pigmentosa, you can see these rings. And these, again, this is measuring lipofuscin in the retina. And when you see these rings, these are areas where actually the cells in the retina are unhappy. They're not healthy. Um, it's not to say that they're dead, but actually um, they, they aren't normal. And actually, if you quantify these over time, um, you can see how, how the condition progresses. So you can take measurements and see if that ring gets smaller over time, which corresponds to the disease progressing as an example. And this is what you can see. This is all in the same person here um, with a um, CNGB1 related retinitis pigmentosa. You can see in 2017, the ring is actually quite wide out and then it slowly gets a bit smaller every couple of every couple of years and this again on the picture on the right there just illustrates the the measurements that we can take from this which can then help us in terms of understanding the natural history of the disease uh, helping us then in clinical trials to see if a treatment works or not and there are lots of different patterns of autofluorescence here so it varies very very widely even within the same condition sometimes so let's say in the top left you see lots of speckled areas on the outside and then a bit more speckling just in the center the one top in the middle there there's a lot of what we call a dark spot in the middle so that's atrophy of the macula in the top right this is towards end stage um, uh, retinitis pigmentosa where there's basically um, a lot of the retina has been affected and there's a big central uh, smudge or, or atrophic area in the macula and similarly on the bottom ones is, as well Finally, one I'm just going to quickly just, just touch upon is, is angiography. So this does form part of our imaging repertoire. Um, it um, is not used as frequently, and um, many patients who have been diagnosed with inherited retinal uh, eye condition might not have had one of these. So uh, that's because sometimes it doesn't help the diagnosis. It's a little bit more invasive. So basically, we have to put a little cannula into your arm and inject some dye, so some what's called fluorescein dye, so uh, orange dye, into the into the into the arm, and then we take photos of the back of the eye at various time points, so we can see the dye moving through the blood vessels, and this can give us some important information. So let's say if we're a bit uncertain of the diagnosis, whether this is a you know a blood vessel problem, whether this is an inflammatory problem, whether this is a genetic problem, this can be quite quite useful and this is just really a snapshot of of some or one of the picture that you might see so at the bottom of the picture here you can see these squiggly lines are white so that means the blood vessels are working there is dye flowing through the blood vessels at the top here you see some of these squiggly white lines but there's also a black line where the dye isn't flowing so this is a blocked blood vessel so a retinal vein occlusion and there's also um, some 
unevenness of the dye at the top there to suggest that part of the retina doesn't have uh, as good as blood supply as the bottom part of the retina and therefore is probably not functioning or seeing so well. So this is just another example of, of one of the things that we can do, but as I say, it's a bit more invasive. Uh, you do have to have the fluorescein injected that can make you a little bit uh, itchy, a little bit sensitive to light. And sometimes you can have a bit of allergic reaction to it, although that's very uncommon. Uh, but it's one of the things we can also, also think about doing in the clinic if needed. Um, so in summary, this, this is really just a, 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 it's a huge topic. Um, and, you know, you, you could spend an entire series of lectures just on one of these, one of these imaging types alone. But Imaging has really, really revolutionized the treatment of eye conditions uh, in the past five to 10 years. It helps us in the diagnosis, to monitor your progression, to really look for any complications or other problems that might be associated with it, and helps us understand um, you know, the natural history of, of your eye condition. It's also used, obviously, it's, it's, it's one of the tools that we use. Obviously, we, we take into account your history, looking at you, examining you on the slit lamp, family history, genetic testing, other things we do uh, beyond that. Um, but otherwise, thank you very much for for listening. I know that was a lot in a very short space of uh, space of time. Thank you very much, Daniel. That was brilliant. I learned so much from that. That was really, really clear. Um, so thank you very much. I really um, enjoyed your descriptions of all the images as well. So I think, um, yeah, that was really, really good. Um, we've already got a question in the Q&A box, um, so I'll just read that one out to you. Um, I'm just going to ask Matt to keep an eye on people's raised hands, if possible, please, Matt, um, and shout if anybody does raise their hands. So just a reminder, you can type into the Q&A box, but if you would rather ask your question live, um, do just raise your hand using the methods Matt described at the beginning, um, and we will ask you to unmute, and then you can ask your question live. So um, the question we've got says, as well as using serial images alongside functional changes to monitor progress, can any images or dyes show rate of change at that time the image is taken? So perhaps by showing um, abnormal processes, so this person said, by showing abnormal meta metabolism in the RPE. If not, can you imagine something like that in the future? Thank you. That's a very good question. Yes, that, that is a good question. So there are... Um... Yes, you're, you're, we can to an extent. So, um, as, for example, with, with OCT, we can perform something called OCT angiography. So that looks structurally uh, at, the, at the eye. Uh, it also gives us an idea of the circulation in the retinal, in the retinal system at that particular time. It's, it's a bit of a newer modality. It sometimes is a little bit crude and a little bit hard to interpret, but it's certainly very useful and it was certainly very useful in a number of situations. Um, I suspect um, imaging is very much the hot topic in, in ophthalmology at the moment. And you know, in my career, I've been doing this for, for 10 years. Um, it is it is transformed and changed so much that it, it's only going to improve in the future. Um, so the short answer is, is yes, certainly. Um, we're always looking for um, um, ways in which um, we can get as much information as possible at a single visit, um, as opposed to having to watch things and see changes over, over months or years. Excellent, thank you. Um, I just thought of a, of a couple of questions. So clearly um, all of these images put together, often they're quite distinct for different conditions. 
when you look at a set of images, can you confirm before you get as far as genetic testing, do you know just by looking at somebody's images that their condition is genetic? That's a good question. Um, in some cases, yes. So it, it, it really depends. There are certain features which would strongly support, let's say, uh, a genetic eye condition. Um, so a lot of the time we can, there are always those which we, we there, there's a big unknown. So uh, for example, um, we have you know lots of, of patients who we think have genetic eye conditions, but all their genetic testing comes back negative. And then we have to think, well, actually, have we misinterpreted the image or do we just not understand the disease? Are there limitations in our, in our genetic testing? Usually, um, again, not always, but usually we have a very good idea of the diagnosis um, based upon your based upon your imaging. Um, there are some cases with genetic eye diseases or retinal diseases where the imaging can look very normal or let's say in children where it's particularly difficult or which we struggle to get particularly good images, in which case uh, we then have to rely on on other things. So clinical judgment, having a look or looking at uh, electrodiagnostic testing. So measuring sort of electrical impulses from from the retina, from the eye. OK, just um, I just saw a question, <clears throat> I think, pop up in the chat box. Um, I don't know, and it seem, I seem to have lost it again. So if you were that person, um, I'm really sorry. Would you mind typing it into the Q&A box again? Um, I can read it, Kate. Oh, can you? Can I've, you see I've it? got it here, yeah. So a question from James <laughs> is, how far are we from being able to look at the retina and know what gene defects someone might have? Is AI being used to decipher this? Yes, a very good question. So. Um, we're probably not that far away from it at all. So there's been a lot of work um, by some of our colleagues at Moorfields uh, using AI techniques, DeepMind and so on, which uh, have been validated for lots, well, so, some other eye, eye conditions. Um, one of the things we're looking at is trying to validate it for inherited retinal problems. The slight, one of the issues you could argue are that these are rare diseases. So actually, to be able to develop this, we, we need we need as much data as possible. But actually, um, more fields or the big hospitals in, in the UK and the world are able to do this. So uh, the answer to that is, is yes, we, we it's not going to be far. OK, and I think James has got another question, Matt. Are you? Yeah, so James follows up with, do we know what changes have been observed in the retinas of people who have been given gene therapy, uh, e.g. AAV gene vectors for RPE65? Uh, as in, do, sorry, do we know what changes they've had? Uh, yeah, do we know what changes have been observed in the retinas of people who have been given gene therapy? So that's a good question. Um, that one I'm not involved in, I don't know off the top of my head. So I don't know the precise changes that have occurred there. Um, most of the metrics that we're using at the moment are usually ellipsoid zone length, uh, purely because it's not influenced by things like what's called cystoid macular edema, which can adjust the thickness or epiretinal membrane or most other things. But I'm not sure off the top of my head, sorry. That's okay. Um, when... Do you have a hand up? Oh, okay. Um, so, uh, I, we, we've got a question from Perm. So, Perm, I'm just going to um, allow you to speak. Uh, so, you may just need to unmute yourself. Hello. Um, thank you for um, allowing me to speak. Um, I have a question for Dr. Johnson. What it is, earlier on, I was actually diagnosed with um, just fluid through a routine eye examination, and this was just with ordinary lenses, then referred to the hospital. So, 
that actually didn't actually show early signs of retinitis pigmentosa, which later I've got genetic um, testing for Usher's 2A. Now, with the earlier stages, can you tell um, how thick the, the, the fluid is with your imaging now that you use? Because you were saying you can actually tell what type. And can you actually see any marginal changes at the next review that you might have if the fluid has gone down or not to an accurate degree of other 20%, 30%? Uh, so yeah, that, that's a good question. So um, we we can so we we can take very accurate measurements. Um, we always have to bear in mind um, the error on these measurements. We're talking about very thin measurements, and also we need to have the OCT taken in in the same sort of orientation, if that makes sense. But mm -hmm. usually, at every eye appointment, if you've got cystoid, so you have cystoid macular edema from uh, us to a yes. mutation. Yes, yes. Um, so yes, yeah, no, we, we can we can monitor that. Um, it's um, it's what it's also one of these things where it can fluctuate a bit. And we sometimes say that to to patients. So uh, obviously, if we're seeing an obvious trend down, we can say it's getting better. Uh, sometimes, you know, we might be talking five, 10 microns difference between between visits. We also have to be very careful when we measure those areas on the scan to make sure we're measuring in exactly the same same place so we can we mm -hmm. just we just have to be very very careful mm -hmm. see the the thing is with with treatment obviously you give us up drops or other drops as well or diamox yeah. tablets yeah have you looked at any alternatives other than because i'm taking us up and there's only been a bit of a, a marginal change and you know the clinicians are you know are really kind of reluctant to put me back on i'm just thinking like the fluid doesn't manifest in the left eye but it's manifesting quite strongly in right. the right eye which is a weaker eye is that right. just down to the, the mutation or is it just down to the like, like, like it's basically the macular's bleeding or leaking at the back so yeah so it's 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 a very good question so um cystoid macular edema um is a condition which is associated with with lots of different eye problems so you can get it after let's say cataract surgery uh you can get it um from a blocked blood vessel, like say a retinal vein occlusion or an inflammatory eye condition. Mm -hmm. uh, in many cases, um, these inflammatory causes can settle down with steroids. So steroid eye drops, even injections or implants into the eye if needed. For reasons we don't necessarily fully understand, the cystoid macular edema or the macular edema in, in retinitis pigmentosa is slightly different. So for example, uh, when you have the azop drops or when you have dorsolamide or oral tablet diamox, um, the cystoid macular edema tends to, well, can respond to that in retinitis pigmentosa, but actually in other forms of cystoid macular edema from, let's say, cataract surgery, so on and so forth, don't respond to that. Um, it's, it's unusual. So we, 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 a lot of patients, unfortunately, don't respond. Um, it all depends upon the type of of retinitis pigmentosa you have as well. So we would tend to go around the course of drops to see if they work or even tablets if you absolutely had to, but sometimes unfortunately it doesn't work. And again, we, we're not entirely sure why. Hmm. Okay. Thank you so much, doctor. Um, your oh, your talk welcome. is absolutely mind blowing. Thank you, I've learned a lot. You're welcome. Has anybody else got any questions they would like to ask? Um, Matt, have we got anything in the in the chat or any more hands? I was just going to say, while well, people are having perhaps another little think, when you do imaging in natural history studies and you do kind of serial imaging, 
presumably in those natural history studies, you're also talking to the patient about their functional vision and, and what they're experiencing from a vision point of view. Is there kind of a clear correlation between measures you take in, for example, an OCT scan and somebody's actual experience of their vision loss? Or is it very, very personal and far too difficult to sort of tie together? It's uh, That's a good point. So obviously, um, a person's vision to themselves is very subjective. It's, it's influenced by lots of things, so not just health of the eye, the brain, the nerves, so on and so forth, amongst a huge number of other things. We know that um, there are certain features in the retina, which means you're likely to have better or certain features we can measure, which are likely to correlate with better vision. So, for example, if your macula is intact or, or uh, there are very few changes there, you'll likely be able to see much better than someone who hasn't. Or let's say if your ellipsoid zone at the centre is is um, normal on the scan, you're likely to have much better vision. Um, it's when we terms measuring the periphery um, is is a bit different. So obviously that relies on visual field tests on on other things. Um, so from the retinal from these sort of scans as a, as we've seen here, it it, it it's not really um, a way of of let's say um, of uh, basically judging what a peripheral peripheral vision is like. But yes, yeah, so it, in essence, yes, they should correlate. Again, that's also quite a tricky thing to measure. There are certain questionnaires and quality of life scoring which, which are included in trials or can be included in natural history studies, uh, which have lots of these influences. Yeah. Thank you. I was just I was just thinking about how what the regulators are looking for and perhaps what NICE are looking for ultimately is, is perhaps yes. on the person's quality of life or, or their day to day yes. life. And um, but obviously also these measures are so important because they're objective and, you know, they're, they're accurate. So yes, um, yes. it's just interesting from that point of view. Have we got any further questions? I can't see any in the Q&A box. Have you popped so any We other? have another one come up in the chat. Um, so it's more of an eye health question. Uh, so for people with inherited retinopathies, uh, apart from not smoking and eating a, a balanced diet, is there any other lifestyle advice um, for making your retinas or to keep them as healthy as possible? Uh, so one thing we would always advise is um, protect them from the sunlight. So make sure you have a good UV filter on your glasses. Uh, make sure you're wearing sunglasses out in the sun. Uh, that's that's quite that's quite important. Um, we've got uh, we've seen this already. We've got a website which we've created, Gene.Vision, which has a lot about this, um, which which talks about I mean, many of the things you've touched upon there. But certainly, light is the light is the important one, we think. Thank Fabulous. Thank you. Um, and um, somebody's just said in the chat, thank you very much for such a clear and informative talk. Um, and it certainly was that. <clears throat> Matt, I think if we have no more questions um, typed in and no more hands up, I'll hand back to you. I have a question. Um, so one of the first images you showed, um, Daniel, um, I think it's one of the photography um, images. It looked like there was like a forest of broccoli on the outside of the of the eye what was yes. what was that yeah so that's um that was the uh, bone spicule pigmentation so which you can see with certain types of inherited retinal conditions so it's a feature of retinitis pigmentosa when you see these sort of specks just in the periphery there so you see that you tend to see narrowing of the blood vessels the nerve can be a bit pale but yes certainly when you see that sometimes you can see it 
in a full circle sometimes you just see it in certain areas or it can be really very subtle and easily easily missed uh, sometimes it also be mistaken for scarring from previous inflammation or even laser treatment at the back of the eyes as well but yes that, that's a feature of, of retinitis pigmentosa or a form of wow. it always amazes me particularly with the photography how beautiful the pictures actually are you know yes. for you know considering some of the things that kind of people are experiencing with sight loss um, yes. I know I've seen some amazing pictures of, you know, when I've had my my eyes photographed and I've always asked for pictures to put them on a T-shirt or something, but they've uh, <laughs> I've always been told, no, you can't have those. Um, Daniel, thank you. That's absolutely fantastic. Um, and somebody else has said, um, you'd also like to say thank you. It's been great. Um, so mm -hmm. last call for any questions. Um, otherwise, we will wrap up for the evening. Um, certainly really, really enjoyed um the session Daniel thank you very much um, so just a couple of things to um, to tell everybody about just whilst you're here with us um, so obviously a huge thank you to Daniel for such a fantastic presentation um, and thank you to all of you who joined us for this presentation this evening um, as mentioned at the beginning we of the evening we are planning to hold at least one webinar every month um, over the coming months we've got topics including Stargardt disease Usher syndrome uh, some technology and we will be joined by somebody from the Department for Work and Pensions to talk around the access to work scheme, um, which I know is something which is interesting a lot of people at the moment. Uh, I also wanted to remind everybody that Retin UK are currently collecting responses for our second site loss survey. Uh, so the results of this survey allow us to better understand our community and in turn allows to ensure that we are delivering the right services, we can influence the right, influence the right people with the latest data uh, and ensure that we're funding the right kinds of projects. So this is a great opportunity for you to have your voices heard. Uh, the survey takes around 20 minutes to complete and is open to anyone living in the UK with an inherited retinal dystrophy. Uh, you can complete the survey either online via our website, so that's retinauk.org.uk. Uh, you can contact our office for a paper copy um, or you can even have it done over the telephone so for more information you can have a look on our website uh, or contact the office team on 01280 821334 again to remind you that Retina UK is a registered charity we receive no government funding and we rely on our wonderful supporters people such as yourselves to raise the funds needed to provide our vital services and to invest in groundbreaking medical research and so there are some great ways that you can support us during 2022. Uh, you could challenge yourself to run, walk or cycle in one of the many events taking place throughout the UK. Our fundraising team are here to help you with some expert support and guidance, as well as um, offering places in prestigious events such as the London Marathon, the Great North Run, Ride London as well. Um, so you can visit wrestlinguk.org.uk forward slash 2022 for some more information on that. Or you could just do some simple fundraising with your colleagues at work or ask your employer to um, select Retin UK as their charity of the year. Um, so if you want some more information about this, you can call the fundraising team on 01280 821334 or email them fundraising at so finally, we will be sending out an email over the next couple of days, which will um, have details of where you can re-watch or listen to Daniel's presentation um, and how you can book onto our other events. 
Uh, we'll also be sending out um, a short link for some feedback on today's session. Um, we really, really do value your feedback um, and allows us to plan future events and make sure we're getting the right things for our audience. So once again, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you to Daniel and we bid you all a good night. Thank you very much.